Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Door. I'm Chris Galley, and I'm joined, as always, by my colleague, co-host, and friend, Mr. Lee Blowers. Lee, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Not too bad. And yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Surviving, surviving. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So we're back here in our regular format where we throw open the doors of classrooms of educators from all around the world, and we're going to learn a bit more about their practice and about their passions. So over the past few weeks, Lee, we've been, we've had a bit of a shift in gears. We've done some different episodes where we've had more of a debate style and we had lots of guests on. What was the, the feedback we got from those episodes? It's been fantastic. I think the engagement from people from the beginning, sort of before we actually recorded the episode and then afterwards as well, people have been really engaged and really excited to respond. It's been really, really enjoyable uh, set of episodes. Yeah, absolutely. We had a lot of fun um, putting those together and, you know, we got a lot of good feedback, um, a lot of responses. So it's definitely something we're going to come back to in the future and we're going to circle back to some more interesting debates. And we've got a lot of good ideas planned for that. Um, So for this episode, we're switching gears back to our regular format and um, we've got a fantastic interview lined up for this episode where we're going to be focusing on the idea of recruitment and we've got a man on the show who knows an awful lot about recruitment and that is Mark Weber. Um, So Lee, do you want to introduce who Mark is and where he's from? Yeah, sure. So Mark Weber is originally from Texas, where he began his 23-year career teaching theatre, debate, and uh, public speaking. So Mark has since worked in Venezuela, Malaysia, I think Sudan, and in Mexico as an international teacher and a fine arts administrator. He founded and supported debating leagues in each of those countries, and uh, coaching international debate is his big passion, as you'll hear in the episode He also served on the board for English-speaking union, ESU, Mexico from 2010 to 2017, as well as currently serving as a founding board member for the Association of Debate in Mexico, which I'm sure you could pronounce far better than I can. (laughs) (laughs) Asociación Mexicana de Debate. Very nice. There you go. Um, And so Mark uh, is actually currently based in Barranquilla in Colombia, and he runs his own recruitment company called Weber's Ed, um, which is a teacher talent and consulting firm. Um, As you'll hear from this episode, Mark is really passionate about getting great teachers into great schools. Uh, And I had the pleasure of working with Mark um, in my time in Mexico. Um, He was working with my school, um, supporting us getting teachers into the school. Uh, And so he helped us getting lots of teachers in from Europe and from the United States. Um, And he also worked with us as we were trying to get our debate team up and running. And so it was a really great opportunity to sit down, just to hear Mark's experience um, over his 20 plus year career in teaching and education. And so um, there's a lot to learn from this. So let's get into the show with Mark. Hi, Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. I'm very happy to be a part of this. 
We're really glad to have you on. You know, we've done over 20 of these episodes now, and I'm pretty sure you're the first from South America. So congratulations. <laughs> thank you. And congratulations to y'all as well. It sounds very exciting. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I was having a quick look um, before we got started. You're currently based in Barranquilla in Colombia. Is that right? That's right. Where Shakira is from. Ah, interesting. And I... Yeah, the main... The main things people don't know about Barranquilla or should know about Barranquilla is one, Shakira is from here, and she actually uh, has a foundation called Pies Descalzos, and um, they, it is uh, schools for kids in the barrio that can't afford to go to a private school but have the aptitude to be able to succeed in that environment. And I actually volunteer at the one here in Barranquilla as their debate coach. And also, they have the second largest carnival in the world, uh, which just happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we're the second largest behind Rio de Janeiro. And actually, this week was this this year was a massive number of people, um, you know, coming to the one here in Barranquilla, uh, simply because tourism is booming here in Colombia now. Wow, it sounds like a fantastic place to live. And yeah, um, it is. so Barranquilla is very far north in Colombia. It's actually on the Caribbean coast. Is that right? That's actually right. It is on the Caribbean coast. And and um, in fact, I can sit here on my, my patio and just stare out at the Caribbean. And uh, it's quite nice. My, my wife and I have dinner out there frequently, just staring out at the sea. Not a bad place sounds, to live. <laughs> sounds beautiful. Mm. Well, y'all are always welcome for a visit. <laughs> Might have to take you up on that offer. <laughs> do please do. We would love it. <laughs> uh, so, Mark, we're here today because um, you've got a very interesting history in education with many years of experience. Um, but to kick off, let's start with what you're doing at the minute. You're director of Weber's Ed, where you're running a teacher talent and consulting company across Latin America. Can you start by yes. telling us a bit about what the company does and how you got into this area of education? Yeah, that that's interesting because um, well, I was in Mexico City at the same time that, that you were, Chris, and I was working for the American school over there. And um, I, I wanted to keep doing what I was doing, was theater, debate, and public speaking. The, those are my areas of teaching. And they had me teaching English language arts, and I did it to you know kind of help them out. And, and and because they had a teacher that whose mom got sick and didn't show up for school the first year that I was there. And so I went ahead and did it, but they had promised to move me over and the schedule just didn't work out for them uh, after two years. And I was like, look, I'm not, I'm probably a mediocre English language arts teacher at best. I'm not passionate about this. How many times can you read The Great Gatsby before it's not that great anymore? <laughs> and so, yeah, so I, I said, look, I'm going to do my own thing. And you guys, best of luck with y'all's schedule, you know. And so I quit to start my own consulting company. And when I did, I real started realizing that a lot of schools were asking me for teachers 
and I uh, had a business partner at the time and we researched the market and realized that there wasn't really anyone paying attention to Latin America, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we saw, found a market niche there and we started that. So I worked with my business partner for about five years and then we had some differences and uh, I went my own way and uh, started Weber's Ed and um, um, also made some of the changes that I thought that the company should make and it's been very success successful you know and, and uh, especially recently we've really had a lot of appreciation thrown our way and so I recruit teachers basically to come mostly from well, from all over the world, but the main areas I try to recruit out of are the United States, Canada, and the UK to bring them down to work in international schools uh, throughout Latin America. And so one of the things that's unique about my company is I've tried to position myself as the expert on Latin America. Um, I think that this is the way forward in recruitment, you know, is that uh, it's going to not be so much people trying to do everything globally, but I, I think that it's important to like to specialize in a certain area and to know that region really well. And Latin America is just my favorite part of the world. It's where I want to be. And so I can work anywhere in Latin America from my laptop. And uh, so I've had the recruiting company. We're also delving into some consulting. Like I said, I did debate and theater and public speaking. And so particularly when I was in Mexico, I had a lot of consulting work in that area. Um, and, and so when I came here to Colombia, I'm still in the process of, of modifying that, but we're about to open a branch of our company that is going to do cost shared consulting for schools. Because mm. one of the reasons we found out why so why no one was really paying attention to the Latin American market is because it's a lot. You can it's it's harder to make money here. Um, mm -hmm. You know, with China and the Middle East just booming over there, people mm. don't really see the reason to come to Latin America, um, and so. But, you know, obviously my reason is different than the than the financial aspect. And so what I want to do for the schools who can't afford to bring in really good professional development for their schools is what we do is we go out and we find people that can do the professional development for them. We bring them in and we set it up on a cost sharing model with other schools that would be interested in having that specific trainer. And so the schools split the costs is essentially mm -hmm. what our model is. That's and we right. facilitate that. Yeah, I think it's going to be. I think it's going to be a winner. Fascinating. So you're almost acting. You know, part of the company is acting as a middleman between educators and the schools in terms of the recruitment. Have you found that uh, Latin America is an area that's growing in terms of um, education, particularly for international educators? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's just true of the entire world. Like, like I said, they're, they're growing. Uh, uh, I wish I could remember the numbers. I just looked at them the other day on ISC Research. That's the, the main company that, that most uh, 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 schools or businesses like mine use to get their statistics from. But they're, they're growing really, really quickly. And it went from something like 
2,000 and something schools in the last 10 years to 5,000 schools right now. And it looks like in the next 15 years, it's going to double that and go to uh, 10,000 schools around the world, as, you know, serving millions of students. And so we're seeing a lot of growth here, but we're seeing that around the world. And mostly that growth is due to the fact that those, the, these countries have wised up like I know when I was working in Malaysia before, that it was illegal for the local students to attend our international school. Uh, however, mm. the schools have realized that they're cutting, I mean, the countries have realized they're cutting their own throats with that because they're getting a very proper education inside their own country mm -hmm. and they weren't allowing their own children to attend that. Now, all the countries are saying, no, 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 it's okay if you want to go to that private, like that private school we'll just treat it like any other private school and the local kids can go and so that's what you see a lot in latin america i would say almost all of the schools with the exception of a handful of them are filled by 70 to 80 percent latin american students latino students which is a great thing because as you know chris they're wonderful kids to work with oh yeah i, I really had a uh, a lot of great joy working in Latin America with the, the students that I work with in, in different countries. Absolutely fascinating. Um, in terms of growth, just a really quick question. You sort of talked about the beginning of your company and having the partner and breaking away. What's been the time scale of Weber's Ebb? How long has this be, uh, idea been going on? It, 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 the way that I... I've shaped it just for the consumption of the community and to, to keep their trust is this is the eighth year. Uh, I'm finishing the eighth year of Weber's Ed, um, but, um, but Weber's Ed originally was only the consulting part of my company. My other company was the teacher's uh, recruitment part. But when I broke away, I just put everything under Weber's Ed. So I'm still calling it eight years because it's the same company yeah. and I'm still the same person with the experience of recruitment. And it was just easier to brand it that way. And, you know, fortunately, because of my work in debate, throughout Latin America, people know who I am. Uh, and that's why I use my own name on the company. I, I did search for several other clever names, you know, out there, but I just couldn't really come up with something that fit what I wanted. And so I just said, well, I'm going to put my name on it. You know, one of the yeah. things I try to tell people is, you know, it's got company has my name on it. You can damn well bet I'm going to try to do the best that I can. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, right. Just to sort of rewind a little bit, I believe you're originally from Texas. So what that is correct. That is good. Good. Well, what took you on the international teaching trail? So, and could you tell us a bit about where else you've taught and what subjects you specialize in? Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, I, I was a teacher back in Texas, and I was coaching a national circuit debate team in Houston at a public high school in Houston called Memorial High School. And it's uh, it's actually, uh, you know, even though it's a public school, it's a very good public school in the neighborhood. It's the neighborhood where the Bushes are from. It's the neighborhood where... Um, 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 
what the uh, Michael Dell is from. Actually, Michael Dell went to the high school that I taught at, but years before I taught there. And uh, and anyway, so I taught there for a long time, and I met my uh, first wife there. Um, she had just come back from teaching in Thailand, and um, I was more like this. And I know this sounds really sexist, but you got to remember this is back in the 1990s <laughs> when I used to say this. I said I I I don't quit chicks. I don't quit debate for chicks. I quit chicks for debate. And so <laughs> I was young and dumb, man. You know, and saying silly stuff like that. But she was the one who actually turned me on to. Um, a international teaching and b getting married so we got married uh when i was about 37 and we wound up going to our first posting together which was in venezuela and this was back when uh chavez was just getting started as the president of venezuela and that was a very interesting time especially for people who are political watchers you know mm -hmm. and uh, so you know i've got a lot of first-hand knowledge about Chavez and Venezuela and the supposed socialism of Venezuela that dispels a lot of the, the crap that we see in the media about socialism. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's another podcast. Or another <laughs> time. Um, so we spent two years there, and then that's when they had the coup against Chavez and, and also was followed by a paro, which paro means to stop, you know, so it was like a work stoppage or basically it was a two month demonstration they had in the country where they shut everything down in protests of Chavez. And during that time was when the contracts were coming out for next year for at our school and our school did, wasn't giving the contracts because they said, look, we can't because we don't know if the school's gonna open next year or not. And if we don't open, we still are required by law to pay you and it would simply bankrupt the school. So they said, so if you guys need to put your resumes out there for other jobs, we totally understand. And so we did just to see what was out there. We were, we were young and inexperienced in, in international teaching, but I got a call from a guy named Bill Powell, who I, um, know didn't know who he was at the time but turned out he was a really big deal and, and uh, has just recently passed away rest in peace great man one of the most intelligent people i've ever met but anyway he was looking for a director of performing arts and ib theater teacher which is exactly up my alley and so he wound up hiring me and i went out to malaysia and we worked for him for four years out in malaysia um, really enjoyed our time there. It's a beautiful country with beautiful locations to travel through. Southeast Asia is just a, a mecca for tr cheap travel and really exciting stuff, you know, like going to uh, see Angkor Wat and things like that and going in, to Borneo and going to just the different Thailand, Indonesia. You're surrounded by so many beautiful countries and mm -hmm. the travel is cheap and the cost of living is fairly cheap. So we spent four years there. I was director of performing arts. And then my uh, ex-wife wanted to finish her master's without working uh, one year. And the school wouldn't let us do that. So we moved on to another school in uh, Sudan, Africa, 
where I took the director of fine arts position for the whole school. Was responsible for building the art programs at a, a brand new school that was only two years old, um, the Cartoon International Community School. And it's the first and only school that I've ever worked at or heard of that had an unlimited fine arts budget. So they let me go wow. in there and design all the, the technical stuff that I needed. I get to buy all the lighting equipment, the most amazing microphones and just everything. And also they let me design my own black box theater, which was a really uh, uh, special thing to do. But my first project that I got to do there was uh, the first play that I did was uh, called Parables for a Season was written by Tessa Nolme, who was considered Africa's top female playwright. She was, uh, for people who know African drama, she was a student of Wole Soinka in Nigeria, and, and Brother Wole is, is well known in African drama. He, he's, he's still alive today, very interesting guy. I've heard some of his interviews, and he is quite an entertainer. Um, but anyway, I got to not only do the world premiere of her play parables for a season but the school like said they allowed me to hire her and bring her in for the last two weeks of our production to work wow. with students and also to be at the performances uh, for our community mm -hmm. and it was a great idea because the my my director of the school Nigel Winter who's now in in Rio at the American School in Rio his idea was hey, you know, we can send 10 or 12 kids out to a workshop and spend the same amount of money as bringing this woman in and having her for the entire community to get to work with, you know? And that was a brilliant idea. And, 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 and it worked out really great. And to me, what was the thing that was most worth it was watching my young African girls and how they took to Tess and how she really inspired them, you know, um, to be expressive and to be artists and 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 to just let it all out, you know. And so mm -hmm. it was a wonderful experience for me and my students. And so I, I stayed in Sudan for three years. Um, I really enjoyed my time there. It was a, a an amazing school to work at. You know, I would work at that school any you know again anytime. And uh, uh, but. But three years was enough, and we, uh, my ex-wife and I, we had nieces and nephews that were growing up in the United States, and so we wanted to be back closer to the USA. Mm -hmm. So that's when we went on to Mexico from there, and like I said, I worked the first two years at the American School, and um, after that, you know, during that time, my wife and I uh, uh, separated and divorced, and I told her, I said, look. I can understand you leaving me. I can't understand you leaving Mexico, you know, <laughs> so, but she did. <laughs> and she went uh, back to the United States and she's very happy there. We're still good friends and all. And uh, I, uh, so I stayed in Mexico running my company uh, from there and um, kind of hid myself in a little dark apartment working away. And that's where I met my, my current partner and wife. Uh, Mary Jo, um, who Chris knows, mm -hmm. and 
and you know, uh, I had sworn off all women altogether, you know, after <laughs> my divorce. But but fortunately, I met an angel named Mary Jo, and she's kind of changed my perspective on that. And so uh, she was the head of school in Mexico, and um, and we got to know each other there. And then we uh, moved on to Colombia together when she got the headship of the British school here in Barranquilla, which is why we wound up here. Um, and, and we're still here uh, living the life on the Caribbean, you know, and mm-hmm. I, you know, still do consulting and stuff like that. But that was more or less my route of international teaching. Wow. Sounds fantastic. Some journey. Yeah, it has been. And we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> like, I think if you wanted to sell the idea of international teaching to your customers, I think you've definitely got an amazing story to sell there. You know, the, the experiences, the experience <laughs> that can be gained from teaching internationally. Mm. <laughs> well, I think that's what people like is, you know, that's one of the things that I think that my company you know, and not trying to, to pimp my company or whatever, but, you know, it is what it is. But one of the things I think about the deal with my company is that when people think about coming to Latin America and they don't know Latin America that well, of course, one of their first questions is always going to be, is it safe there? Because we all know what we read in the media, you know, and so they have now a live person to talk to who actually lives in the region, has traveled the region, because I go around to several of the different schools, backpacking around and visiting the schools just to get the feel of the climate of the schools and the feel of the country and the city that they're in. And so that I can tell candidates about it when they ask and give them firsthand knowledge, you know. And so, like, you know, one thing I always say is people have to determine safety for themselves. What I might consider to be safe may be totally different than what other people, in fact, I'm sure it's totally different mm-hmm. than what other people think about safety. But, but you know, I give them some ways, some perspective to look at it on how to look at it. And I think people truly appreciate that. But the other thing is I only work with schools that are honorable schools in the sense that they honor everything that they put in their contract. They honor their promises to teachers. They treat teachers professionally. And so when I send my candidates to a school, they know that they are going to a school that has been vetted and that does honor their word on and, and, and the professionalism in which they treat teachers. And so that I won't work with the school. In fact, I've turned down contracts uh, with schools you know, even though it, sometimes I needed the money, but I'm like, no, because I think one bad school could sink my company, you know, mm-hmm. and that and that's just the way I think about where would I want to be and what would I want, you know, what kind of placement would I want? And so that's what I try to give to other people. Amazing. Um, and one of the things I really love on, you know, the branding, you know, going back to the idea of branding on your website, you know, you sell this idea of we live here, we work here. And, you know, you're very much a part of that ecosystem um, in terms of getting the teachers in there, supporting the schools. You know, you're clearly doing a lot within the region. Um, just speaking specifically about Latin America, I was reading one of your blog posts and you referred to the area as the the Wild West in terms of education. You know, so, 
<laughs> I, I love that phrasing. You know, there's a lot changing. There's a lot happening. What are some of the attractions for teachers looking to move to the region, particularly, you know, if they're maybe uh, teachers who've started teaching in the UK, for example, what would they gain from looking internationally? Yeah. yeah. So the first thing I'll say, what, the, the, what they need to be very aware of to start with, and I always tell people this, is money is not, except with the exception of a handful of schools in Latin America that actually do pay as good as any school around the world. There's only about four or five that do that. The um, um, money is not the thing. So if someone really has to pay a lot of bills back home or whatever, or they just want to make bank, which you know that can be done in international teaching, you can make a lot more money. You can, what I should say is you can save a lot more money than you could save because of the low cost of living uh, that you could save in other countries. So that's, that's obviously there. But what people mostly come to Latin America for, to answer your question, is they come here for lifestyle. I mean, you, you just can't beat it. You've got some of the most gorgeous mountain ranges in the world. You've got some of the most gorgeous, some of the top beaches in the world. Uh, the food, the culture is very, very profound. Like if you go to places like Mexico or countries like Bolivia or Guatemala, you know, the, the cultures are, are very, very profound there. There's a lot of artifacts that still live in the culture that are part of the old culture. And I think for those of us coming from like um, Western um, first world, or I don't like to use that terminology, but uh, developed countries, we've, we've lost that. You know, we don't really get to see those things on a day to day basis. So like when I'm here in Colombia and Barranquilla and I still see people traveling around with a buckboard drawn uh, by horses selling fruit, you know, that is very, very uh, you know, endearing uh, to me. And so I love that, you know, I love the fact that I can get in my car and I can drive to several different beaches that are very nice beaches within 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes, you know, um, and then just the idea of learning other languages, learning how people see the world in a different way, learning how not everything's rush, rush, rush. Mm. You, know, you guys are British. I was worried because I was eight minutes late. For <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, my God, they're going to. They're going to put me in detention or something, you know. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I was worried. <laughs> I gotta say, that's one of the yeah. <laughs> that's one of the things that you that you um, you think about is like you know when people come here with that that mentality because they're new here. I'm like, look, what kind of environment do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the one where it's rush, rush, rush all the time and you just don't feel like you ever get to enjoy anything? Or do you want to live in the one where it's okay to be 15 or 20 minutes late? I'm going to have a beer or a coffee and wait for you. And it's cool. I already planned for that to happen, you know? And, mm -hmm. and for me, I like the latter. I like the fact that, you know, I mean, I'm still very gringo about trying to be on time for business appointments. But if we're going to meet up and it's casual, you know, I, I like for it to be a more relaxed environment. And I think that, that so it's not just about all the things you're going to see and the food you're going to eat. It's about a way of life, you know, and about mm. living differently. And, and just uh, as my dad used to say, 
uh, Mark, take time to stop and smell the roses, you know, <laughs> so, or the gardenia or whatever it is there, you know. Mm. Well, I think you're really selling the uh, the Latin American lifestyle, and it sounds a fantastic thing to do. Um, you must see teachers coming into Latin America, but also seeing some of the teachers who eventually have to leave or decide to leave and return to their home countries. What do you think some of the challenges that face those teachers are when sort of returning home? I think one thing that a lot of them don't anticipate is the reverse culture shock. Mm. Like if you've been overseas for a while, like when I go, I've been out now 20 years. And when I go back to the USA, I am very culture shocked, you know, mm. it's just, it's very, it's, it, it's, it's a foreign country to me now. Um, you know, um, when I go to the UK, it's still enjoyable because I don't spend long amounts of time there, but I'm sure I would kind of feel that there as well. So I think that's a big part of it is adapting back to your own country after mm. you've lived in these other cultures. Uh, I, I, other than that, I think the other thing is maybe getting uh, used to like the economic situation, you know, because when you're out international teaching, it, the money is really good because even if you're not in a high paying job, the schools most, for the most part will pay your housing, they'll pay your insurance, they'll pay uh, a, a lot of your expenses and, and also like like people are paying crazy money for insurance and medical procedures back home. Well, that's not the case in Latin America. In fact, this is one of the destinations for medical tourism, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you don't have, uh, you don't have as much expenses when you're living abroad and you seem to have more expendable cash on hand where you can kind of do what you want. You can go out to eat whenever you want. You can, buy a new laptop whenever you want, those kind of things. And, mm -hmm. and I think when you go home, you have to tighten your belts because it's not like that because things are more expensive. And when you compare the cost of living versus what you're making, you just don't have as much expendable cash as you had when you were abroad. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's part, a big part of it, you know? Definitely. So those would be the two big ones that I would say for sure. Yeah. I, I really love how you took that question and you flipped it into a selling point for teaching in Latin America. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I do, man. Uh, I do yeah. it, you can never turn it off. One of the challenges that teachers face, you know, particularly when they're thinking about a move abroad, is that decision of when to actually start the ball rolling and i was reading one of your blog posts and you sort of give advice as to when is the best time to actually look for an international teaching job you know particularly with the difference with the the northern and the southern hemisphere um what would your advice be to teachers you know if they're they're looking to make a move to colombia when should they start to look well, not trying to sell again, but now, <laughs> now is the time. <laughs> Actually, so so that's that's a really good question because Latin America is unique in a couple of ways. The first one is that most of the international teaching, regardless of where you want to go in the world, you want to start getting all your documents ready and your and rewriting your CV and your cover letters 
you know, in the first semester, like around November or December. But usually about January is when the heavy season hits. And that heavy season goes from January all the way through about May. And so that's, but that's for Northern Hemisphere. But one of the things that we have that's very unique here, and I, I would definitely like for uh, British teachers to hear this, because my understanding is that British teachers are allowed to leave their jobs in December, if that's, if I have that correctly. Um, we have also what's called Southern Hemisphere or A calendar schools, and these schools don't start, they start in like uh, the end of January, somewhere in February or the beginning of March, and then they run all the way through November or the very beginning of December. And so that's a whole different offset schedule that like is is uh, another time that teachers could come on board. So if they were going to start doing that, they would want to start looking for jobs in the first semester. Like mm -hmm. they would want to rewrite all their all their documents and have their stuff ready in the summertime. And then around in September or October, those Southern Hemisphere schools, which are mostly in South America, um, they those schools are just getting ready to hire. And that's one of the things I'm trying to uh, position with my company so that I don't ever have a slow time of the year. And I've just started going to the LAC conference, the Latin American Heads Conference, which is a group of about almost 50 British schools here in Latin America. And they're very nice and very good schools. And so I found a, a really good um, um pool of clients there and I'm able to provide them with um, teachers but the, the the hard part about that is I have to find teachers that want that are looking for jobs in January February or March so mm -hmm. the UK is one of the places that I recruit out of because a lot of these schools are British schools first of all but also this is where I've started to tap the markets in Australia, New Zealand and South Africa because that's another region of the world that also has a calendar or what we call southern hemisphere calendar and so I'm able to bring teachers from there and the schools like the teachers from those countries in particular. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Hmm. But they love the UK. <laughs> <laughs> um, I heard you mentioning sort of getting your CVs ready and things like that. And recently I've been looking at my own kind of CV and um, what can I present as a teacher? What are schools kind of looking for? And I know that social media and online professional learning networks have kind of shifted that slightly. How important do you think it is that teachers are developing kind of an online brand and, and an identity? I think it's critical. I think it's absolutely critical. And, you know, if you said that, if you saying looking at your own CV, I'm looking at my own online portfolio. And I mm -hmm. did this portfolio like about 10 years ago, and it looks really clunky now. <laughs> you know, it's a very old school looking. So I'm looking for another place to move my portfolio over just for, for branding purposes and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. I think that it's not only important for ease of access for administrators to look at, and they do indeed look at it, you know. Yeah. 
but the, the fact of the matter is they want to see that you're technologically savvy and that you can at least put together something like that. Because even in this day and time with all the technology that we have around us, you'd be surprised how many people don't know how to use Google Docs, how many people don't know how to convert a, a, a document into a PDF. How many people don't know how to decrease the size of documents? And so one of the things some schools have started, like the American school I work with in Mexico, that their online application, they have you do several things like that as part of the application process, just to see if you can do the technology. You know, granted, you could go get somebody else to do it, I guess, for you, but there's a time limit in there. And if you can't fulfill that, then they know that you don't have the tech savvy to to be uh, really functional in their school. So I do think I think it's critically important and I think it will be I think more than that, it will become more and more important because like we can look at the situation that we're dealing with right now with the coronavirus. The mm. thing I'm shocked by the coronavirus is how many schools are scrambling to put up um, online teaching during the during this crisis right now. And and the schools that I worked in in the past, they already had that, partly because I worked in developing countries where civil insurrection was quite common. And so, like I said, in Venezuela, we missed a, you know, a whole month of school uh, because of and certain things around that. Mm. So we had to build a platform to be able to reach our students on days when they couldn't come to school, you know, and they were required to attend uh, those classes. And so I think the technology is just going to become more and more important for lots of reasons, not just emergency reasons, you know, or not just to see how crafty you are, you know, mm. and, and using Prezi or whatever. But I think it's 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 going to be a necessity too. I think schools are going to do it to save money as well. I'm already seeing schools who can't afford to like, say, hire a business economics teacher that, you know, for one, one or two classes, they're, they're purchasing uh, memberships with companies who will teach it online for them. So there's, there's students that want to take business or economics will just go and take an online class within the school that day and then it saves the school the expense and that it seems to make sense you know on a on an expense level but having said all that i would say that you know i think it's still a long way off before technology replaces the live body teacher oh, definitely mm. uh, we could do a whole of a show on that um <laughs> yeah i was just thinking that too <laughs> for sure, for sure. um i love the fact that you sort of mentioned that yeah, you know, schools are really looking at candidates from the minute that you're sending an application. The fact that can you actually upload the application form? Is it in the correct format? You know, that's obviously part of the process, isn't it, of the recruitment. It starts from the minute you send that email to the school. Um, once mm -hmm. a teacher has landed a job, what would be your top interview tip um, when they actually get in the building, they sat down with the head teacher? How can they get that job? Okay, so you mean before they've landed the job? But yeah, they, so if they, they sat down, they're in the interview. interview. What What's your top interview tip? It'd be yourself. 
to be yourself. I mean, I know it's hard for people because a lot of people get very nervous. As you can tell, I'm a talker because I come from a theater and debate and public speaking background. So I love interviews. I, I'll go, in fact, I thought about going and doing people's interviews for them. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that, that, of course, is a joke. But but the thing is that um, that some people get very nervous in their interviews and they get very scared and they don't know how to position themselves in the interview. I would say, you know, the most important thing in an interview is to be yourself, because what schools are looking for is as well as looking for a good teacher is that they're looking for someone who's going to be a good fit. And you don't want to go to a school that is not a good fit for you because it's just going to be headaches for you and headaches for the school. So, you know, don't be afraid to to let out some of your vulnerabilities. I think schools love that, you know, that to see that, that you can say, yeah, I made a mistake there or here's something I did that I would, you know, not do again or whatever. You know, in, hmm. in the sense that we all make mistakes and the fact that you can see that you made a mistake and that you're willing to learn from it. I think that that speaks volumes about a candidate. You know, nobody's perfect. Right. And, well, and so although that would be my top two. Well, that sounds fantastic for me, because two things I'm very good at is being myself and making lots and lots of mistakes. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to allow myself a great job. <laughs> Yeah, you'll fill the interview with that. <laughs> uh, you just mentioned debating as well. And I know this is one of your really big passions um, is debate. You've run summer clubs and uh, your role as coach for the Team Mexico debate team. So what is an academic debate? And how does that actually work? Yeah, so academic debate is very different than what a lot of people are used to seeing Model UN. Uh, I would say Model UN is a great introduction to debate and public speaking for students. But academic debate is a bit more rigorous than that, uh, because what you basically do is you have teams and it depends upon the uh, style of debate that you're doing. There's Lincoln Douglas in the United States that is one on one debate. There's a two person style of debate, policy debate in the United States, British parliamentary debate is made up of the two person teams. Mm-hmm. And there's also world schools debate where you have actually five members on the team, but only three people actually get to debate in each of the different rounds, but it can change from different members each round that you go to, depending on who's an expert on the topic that you're about to debate. And so that that changes the dynamic of it a bit as well. And mm-hmm. so basically you're given different topics uh, to debate. Um, and like, for example, if you debate policy debate in the United States, you debate the same topic all year long, but there's hundreds of different approaches to the topic. It's a very broad topic. But if you debate like world schools debate or British parliamentary debate, for example, you debate a different theme or a different topic every single round. And in some cases, you don't even know the topic before the debate. In British parliamentary, they give you 15 minutes to prepare. In world schools debate, they give you uh, an hour to prepare your team to prepare their cases. And then you go in the room and you debate. 
And mm -hmm. so it's there's time limits set on the speeches. There's different um, roles that each speaker takes on and duties that they have to perform within each of those speeches. And then you usually have between one and three judges at the back of the round that are listening to the entire debate and doing what we call flowing sometimes mm. is where they're recording the notes on who said what. And then at the end of the round, they have to make a decision which team won the debate. And then you will try to win as many of the preliminary rounds as you can so that you get uh, invited to the elimination rounds. And usually it's the top 16 teams that advance to the elimination rounds. And, and so that's uh, kind of the way that most debate leagues are organized. Um, and you have several tournaments. And then, like you said, there's the one, the World Schools Debate that I did with Team Mexico. I coached Team Mexico. Actually, I coached my first team to ever coach at the World Championships was Team Sudan. Mm. Last year there, we got invited to Qatar to bring a team. And I took a team that wound up winning three out of the eight rounds. And they had never oh, debated wow. before, including beating um, teams that were highly ranked and taking a ballot off of England on a 2-1 <laughs> split. Well, England was second place in the tournament that year. And my team, my little young team, they didn't back down. They, you know, they, they, they gave them everything that they had. And it was a great round. I was very proud of my kids. Um, huh. All the way to coaching Team Mexico. And I was the first coach to the coach Team Mexico to the elimination rounds, to the break rounds, the Sweet 16, as we call it. And uh, out of the seven years that I coached Team Mexico, they advanced to the elimination rounds four times. Uh, winning as high as seventh place uh, in Turkey. And uh, that's, that's quite good because uh, the World Championships is very, very competitive. 50 to 60 countries, and only one team can come from each country. So you're going against the best of the best. And uh, it, it's been a great experience. I can imagine. It's, mm. It sounds like a fascinating experience, and it's almost a whole subculture within education i know um from working very with you in, true. in mexico true. yeah you know this um as you say these leagues and the teams people get really passionate about it um and so you were talking about sort of the format and some of the the questions people they don't know the questions beforehand so they literally walk into a room and they got to prepare for a question to debate on what have been some of the best debate questions that you've come across recently that have really sparked some great debate and passion within the students uh yeah this is one of the topics that i think that was a really good uh motion that was debated i think at the harvard tournament about last year was whether the U.S. should um, um, invade, do a military invasion of Venezuela. I think that's a very, very difficult topic and very winnable on both sides. And that's usually what we look for are motions that are, are uh, winnable on both sides so that each team has the possible advantage of winning the, the debate if they handle the argumentation right. Um, I think that there's probably going to be some excellent motions that come out of the how to handle the coronavirus uh, issues. Um, um, you know, I, uh, I haven't been to a debate tournament this year 
um, because I've been here in Colombia and stuff and haven't been traveling. I usually go back to Mexico uh, quite frequently because I'm still on the board for Asociación Mexicana de Debate. It's an NGO that's started by my, all my former students and mm -hmm. they're running uh, the debate league there now. And in fact, they will be hosting the World Debating Championships for the second time ever in Latin America this summer. Hopefully, if the coronavirus doesn't, you know, yeah. knock them out yeah. of the box. So some other good motions, though, to get to get back to it. They just, you know, they usually revolve around um, key events that are happening around the world. A lot of times they do come back to U.S. topics like like it might be a topic is is socialism better than capitalism? I always love that topic. I think it's a, <laughs> a, a, a great topic. And it's interesting how many people don't really know what socialism is. They mm -hmm. think it's straight up communism, you know, and uh, and they don't and not even though they not know, they don't want to listen. So I won't get into that. That's my, <laughs> that's my Facebook arguments right there. <laughs> but so there's there's lots of good ones. I'm sorry I don't have more. Uh, recent examples for you, but like I said, I haven't been to a tournament in in a few months, so yeah. No, no, that sounds that sounds really great. Um, I think teaching is a profession that you know evolves; it changes slowly over time. Um, sometimes it's driven by demands in the world. Sometimes it's driven by technology. Well, what about the role of debate coach? What's really involved there? How do you uh, see yourself in that position? Yeah. Um, <laughs> first of all, I, you know, I think the thing is of being a good coach is like being a good leader. You know, mm -hmm. you have to know the qualities on how to motivate people. You might be the best, best debate coach in the world, but if you can't get people to follow you, it's going to do little good. But I think that that's been mm -hmm. one of the things that's always been a part of, of being a coach. You know, I think that you mm -hmm. have to, you have to be willing to put out the risk yourself. One of the things I do is I actually debate against my debaters, and sometimes I get beat by them. <laughs> uh, mostly, I mostly I beat up on them, <laughs> but they'll, they'll probably tell you a different story. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, but but I like to do that because it reminds you of what you're asking the kids to do. I think mm -hmm. in teaching in general, we sometimes forget all the hard tasks that we're asking students to do and we just expect them to do it and you, they guess what they do it why because kids are amazing you know yeah. they can do so much stuff if you just know how to motivate them and push them in the right direction but one of the things that i would say that's evolved as being a debate coach and i think is a very very important issue is the the, the idea of um, child protection that's become a very big issue in recent mm. years, not just in the debate circuit, but just in schools in general. And I'm going to be a little bit blunt and harsh with this because I do think it's a topic that deserves that. Is There's just simply, um, you know, monsters among, well, maybe that's an unfair word mm. to use, but there are people among us that are willing to take advantage of children, mm -hmm. take advantage of their naivety, take advantage of the position that they hold over those kids, and, and, and bad stuff happens. And I think that that's something that we have to all be very vigilant about is, you know, how we work with students 
and um, to make sure that, that the kids are taken care of, yeah. you know, first and foremost. And the other thing that I'm seeing, and this is coming, I don't know, I'm sure this is happening in other countries and it's not just in the USA, but one of the things that I really am bothered by is win at all cost mentality. I just mm -hmm. don't understand why people would value winning if they have to cheat to do it. I just, mm -hmm. I don't get it, you know, like go buy a trophy only <laughs> or whatever, you know? And, and so like, I'm really disappointed at that idea that like, I've stopped watching American football because of it, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, simply because the cheating is so bad. And, and I'm seeing that also occur in different regions around the world. And it's one of the things that, I really preach about on the Mexican debate circuit is, you know, having integrity and being socially just and just being honest with yourself. And mm -hmm. so those are things that I think that coaches really need to be at the forefront. They need to be the leaders on that. They need to be above reproach. They need to be the ones who set the example always and, mm -hmm. and, and never let those kind of things get in the way other kids learning because the the education should always be at the forefront absolutely um and you know mark you've got so much experience in debates and i think we could probably spend a whole of hour learning more about how what students can really learn from this and one of the questions that i sort of had was should actually this be part of the core teaching curriculum? You know, a, a lot of schools, they sort of do this as an after school club. You maybe get one teacher who's mm -hmm. passionate about it and, you know, they sort of run with it. Um, are there schools that they actually have this as a key part of their curriculum? Yeah. Well, so in the United States, for example, we have in almost every school has a debate team. And, mm -hmm. but the thing is, it's an elective still in a lot of the schools. For a while in Texas, when I was still teaching in Texas, public speaking and debate were a required course. I think that they've retracted that now uh, because of different leadership in the state. But I definitely, definitely think it should be a part of it. I think it, I think it's one of the most important things that any student can learn, especially when we're living in the world of, uh, you know, in a society of fake news now, and people have to learn how to discern between uh, what's real and what's and what's fake. And even without fake news, there's different standards of information out there. And so, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm old school. I, I, I remember when they walking into my second school I ever taught in in the library and was in there crying because they were taking the card catalogs away. And I was like, so what, why do you need the card catalogs? And she's like, well, kids won't know how to use them anymore. And I'm like, but why do they need that? We have computers now. You know, we have the Internet now. And this was when the Internet was first coming out. And she couldn't answer my question about that. But I, I could understand. But the problem was that we had little information at that time. We had only what your library had access to or what you could get from a lending library. Now the problem is we have too much information. So if you're a, a kid out there writing a paper or doing a debate, how do you discern between what is good information and mm. what is less good information, you know? Mm. And I think that that's a big issue. We're seeing adults struggle with that, you know? Even academics who are struggling with that, you know? It's not just uh, 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 low-educated people. It's, I mean, 
I think a lot of people struggle with that. Like, what's good information? And then you have the circus of politics going on in our countries these days. And that makes it even more difficult to tell what is uh, <laughs> what is real and what is uh, uh, satire, you know? Mm. To me, it all sounds like satire. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a big issue. Did I answer the question? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just becoming aware, Mark, that we've taken up lots and lots of your time. Do you have time for one more question? I have all the time we need, except for I have to go to breakfast in a little bit. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Brunch sounds fancier. You guys, you guys are British, so I'll say brunch. <laughs> oh, yeah. Gotta got love a brunch. Most important meal of the day. <laughs> so yeah. you've got so much experience, and we've heard lots about the different contexts and the locations that you've worked. Um, if you had the opportunity to start your own school, what would be your number one priority for that school? Oh, yeah. It would not be like schools today. Forget the little boxes. Forget the classrooms. Forget the individual subjects. Let's do democratic pedagogy where students are allowed to learn what they want to learn at the pace that they want to learn it. And let's do it project based. Okay, mm -hmm. because that's the way that the world works. You know, I have kids who can do trigonometry. But good God, if the copier gets jammed, they have no clue <laughs> how to open that copier and clear the jam, right? And yeah. so then what's the point? Like, we're not teaching them. It's a wonder that these kids come out of 12 years or 13 years of education and know how to do anything with the fragmented knowledge that we've given them. We don't teach them how to do anything. And that is, that is you know, and I'm speaking generally. To be honest with you, there's schools out there that are starting to do what I'm saying. You know, mm -hmm. one of them that I point to, and you should look up some videos on this, this dude named Ricardo Semler in Brazil. He is a, a big businessman um, in Brazil that started his own schools called the Lumiar Schools. And I'm just in love with this model because it is exactly that. It's democratic pedagogy and it's project-based schooling. And what he's done is he's developed this computer program where the teachers are no longer teachers. They, I don't even think they use that word. I think they call them facilitators and they help advise the students on the projects and the education that they're working on. But also they're constantly assessing the students and tracking what the students are learning and putting it into the computer program so that the kids have a portfolio that shows the areas that they've been working on and the learning that they've been achieving and also the areas where they haven't been working and they try to encourage students to do projects that will help them learn some of the areas that may not be the, their strong areas or may not be the areas that they're most interested in. But the reason why I love this, this model, and, and uh, so to speak, is because it focuses on what kids are good at. It emphasizes their strengths rather than trying to do the ga gotcha, aha, trick questions. <laughs> you didn't know that thing there, you know, and now I have to mark you down on it. You know, it's, and it has a certain uh, that well, that's the appeal of gamification, right? Yeah. There's no fa failing in the concept of gamification. There's only different levels of success. 
And that's what I think that we should be doing in the schools besides teaching kids how to do something and also besides uh, subscribing to what their interests are and when they want to learn stuff. Because, because we know that all the math that we're teaching in high school, 90% of the kids won't even use that math. I've, I've never factored a damn thing in my life. You know, and the kids that know how to do factoring, <laughs> they don't even know what it's used for. You know, <laughs> so I'm like, what's the point then if we don't know? Yeah, I think you sure hit the nail on the head. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, that's what I think education should look like. Well, I think you would um, you would definitely be interested in listening to one of our previous episodes with Rob Hoban, um, who's uh, one of the directors of Agora School in the Netherlands, and they run a very similar model to Lumia. Um, it, it's definitely yeah. a, a fascinating model, and certainly what I would hope would be the future of education. It would be fascinating yeah. to see more schools go down that route. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they've been around for a while. You've got things like Summerhill. You know, they've been around mm-hmm. 70, 80 years. You know, um, yeah. yeah, I definitely highlight some of the failings of the the current education systems that we have around the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Mark, we are so grateful for your time. We've learned so much from you today. Um, if our listeners want to get in touch with you if they want to learn more about what you do um, where can they find you so the easy one is webbersed.com there's links on my website where you can send me a message and i am the one who receives all those messages in response to them or the other one is mark weber at webbersed.com that's my email address and it's Weber with two B's. Mm-hmm. Mark Weber at WeberZ.com and uh, WeberZ.com is my website. Two B's. Wonderful. Are you on Twitter by any chance? And a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. are Twitter fans. Yeah, at Twitter at WeberZ. Oh, wonderful. You got that branding sorted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that was the idea, right? Uh, wonderful. I'm even, even trying to do Instagram, but I think you'll just find some confusing things on that. Oh, that's, but that's a whole eventually I'll world. learn it. <laughs> yeah, old dog, new tricks. Yeah, we'll leave that to the teens, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. No, they're doing TikTok and oh, other yeah. stuff now. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're Mark... old school with Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mark, thank you so much for your time. We will let you go ahead and get to your brunch or how would you say brunch in Spanish? Uh, no, it's there. I don't know that there's a word. Brunch. Brunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's a word for it. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much and we'll speak to you very soon. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. I really appreciate this as well. And uh, great questions, by the way. I thought this was very good. So thank thank you you. very much. Well, thank you so much to Mark for joining us for that episode. It was a fascinating journey through his life in education, going across so many different continents in so many different contexts. Mm -hmm. What did you get from that discussion, Lee? It's just so interesting to hear his passion and um, just the stories that he has from absolutely anywhere. I felt that we could have honestly recorded for 
four to five hours <laughs> and just sat and just ingested all of the wonderful tales. Um, how about for you? Well, I just love hearing Mark's passion for debate. Um, you know, something, you know, he really loves, but is also really good at. And, you know, seeing some of his amazing work in schools and working with students in summer camps in Mexico. And it's, you know, it's a fantastic idea. It's a fantastic program that, you know, more schools should definitely be getting involved with. Mm. Um, I also, I loved his interview tips, you know, just being yourself. You know, I think a lot of people, they get so stressed when it comes to the big interview day but actually if you just turn up and be yourself then that's the yeah. best that you can do yeah and really that point of being yourself you know you go to an interview and you're not the only one being interviewed they're being interviewed as well if you're not right for the school it's likely that that school is not right for you and it's about finding a match it's about both of you coming away happy and finding the right place for you to be working Absolutely. You know, the minute you walk into a school, you always you, you get this sense, don't you, of whether you're a right fit, whether you feel mm. comfortable working in there. And absolutely, uh, an interview is an experience for both parties. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So we will be back in a couple of weeks. We've got a, another amazing guest lined up. In the meantime, we'd love for you to listen back through our back catalogue. Um, we've got some fantastic guests on there um or why not get involved in the show yourself either leave us a voice message on anchor and there'll be a link in the show notes send us a message on twitter uh, you can find me at cgalleyedu lee you are at mr blowers wonderful so we will be back very shortly with another episode of open door